Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Remarkable Exercise in Honest Thinking. It's Reformation Day 2009. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 1st, 2009. This week, many Christians will observe October 31st as Reformation Day. On this day in 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the Castle Church in Wittenberg and jump-started what we now call the Protestant Reformation. This year also marked the 500th anniversary of the birth of the French reformer John Calvin in the year 1509. So, exactly what was the Reformation, and why is it important today? Global Christianity's family of two billion adherents consists primarily of three siblings that resulted from two divorces. The Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches separated in the year 1054, and then Protestants split from Catholics in 1517. Today, there are roughly 1.1 billion Catholics worldwide, 346 million Protestants, and 216 million Eastern Orthodox Christians. But there's more to the Christian family, thanks in particular to what the Reformation wrought. David Barrett, author of the World Christian Encyclopedia, has documented the explosion of what he calls neo-apostolic movements around the world. Distinct from Protestants, in numbering about 400 million Christians in 20,000 movements, Barrett says these are Christians who reject historical denominationalism and restrictive or overbearing central authority. In fact, I would say that these groups epitomize the internal logic of the Reformation's protesting and reforming impulses. The original Reformation was many different and complex things. It radically altered every sector of European society. Church, culture, politics, economics, universities, governments, education, and certainly the everyday lives of ordinary people. By the end of the 17th century, European religion had become a function of geography in a badly fractured continent. Where you came from pretty much decided your religion, and within that region, no other religion was tolerated. Christians tortured, burned, beheaded, and quartered each other over the nature of baptism in the Lord's Supper. From the Peasants' War in 1525 until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 that ended the Thirty Years' War, there were precious few times and places without barbaric warfare. As Diarmaid McCullough puts it in his book, The Reformation, it was a process of extreme mental and physical violence. Eventually, toleration and generally peaceful coexistence resulted. Hereditary and state powers as divinely sanctioned rights succumbed to rule of law and the voices of citizens. 
individual conscience displaced institutional coercion. The Reformation also protested clerical corruption and church hypocrisy that had festered for a millennium. People had had enough of religious authoritarianism, exploitation, and abuse. And so purification of the church and restoration to its original integrity, however idealistic, became the order of the day. The Reformation also birthed what Alistair McGrath of Oxford University has called a revolutionary and dangerous idea, that ordinary Christians, as opposed to any centralized religious authority, could and should read the Bible for themselves in their own everyday language and draw their own conclusions from it. That Bible, by the way, is now available in 2,370 different vernacular languages. As a consequence, says McGrath, uncontrollable forces were unleashed 500 years ago by Luther and his kin. The most fundamental question of any religion, observes McGrath, is who has the right or the authority to define its faith? For Protestants, the answer to that question seems to be no one. For what has distinguished Protestantism is its principled refusal to allow any authority above Scripture. And so McGrath calls Protestantism a method as opposed to any one specific historical outcome of the application of that method. This dangerous idea of religious authority represented a radical departure from Eastern Orthodoxy, which observes how both Catholics and Protestants ground religious authority in an external norm. For Catholics, this external dogmatic authority resides in the teaching magisterium of the Church, as expressed in the primacy and infallibility of the papacy. For Protestants, there arose the famous doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. But whereas Catholicism and Orthodoxy disagree about the nature of theological authority, they agree in their rejection of the Protestant alternative. Two Protestant hallmarks deserve special mention. The relationship between scripture and tradition and the relationship between Scripture and the Church. First, when Luther burned the books of Catholic canon law at Wittenberg's Elster Gate on December 10, 1520, he symbolized an important Protestant distinctive. Whatever honor Protestants bestow upon tradition, they deny that its authority is co-equal with Scripture. And so Luther wrote, what else do I contend for but to bring everyone to an understanding of the difference between the divine scripture and human teaching or custom? And Calvin objected to, quote, the tyranny of human tradition which is haughtily thrust upon us under the title of the church. The reformers didn't reject tradition outright, as a reading of Calvin, Luther, or Wesley easily shows but they objected to the elevation of tradition 
to the status of Scripture. Secondly, the Reformers placed the Scriptures above the Church. They insisted that the Bible interprets itself, and that through the Holy Spirit, God instructs its readers in a direct and individual manner, binding the conscience to the, as opposed to the supposedly reliable teaching of the Church. On April 18, 1521, Luther appeared before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms in order to defend his writings. With a stack of books and pamphlets on the table in front of him, he was told to change what he had written. He said he would gladly change if it could be shown that what he had written contradicted the scriptures. Again ordered to recant, Luther uttered the words which altered the history of Europe and eventually the whole world. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I'm bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. It's precisely this view that elevates one's personal conscience in the scriptures above both tradition and the church, and that actually encourages private interpretation that the great Orthodox theologian George Florovsky once called, quote, the sin of the Reformation. Catholics knew that encouraging individuals to read the Bible for themselves in their own vernacular would undermine the authority of their hierarchy. Thus, the Roman Index of 1596 prohibited translations of the Bible into everyday vernacular and publicly burned such Bibles as they could find. Catholics also rightly predicted that sectarian zeal devoted to privatistic Bible reading would fragment the church into scattered shards. And so today we have over 20,000 Protestant denominations not to mention Barrett's neo-apostolic movements, every one of which justifies its existence to some degree by claiming that it alone has the magic, or at least more magic in a more pure, original, and authentic form than other Christian groups. As a Protestant, I'm thankful for the Reformation, but I'm also painfully aware of the carnage, the fragmentation, and the institutionalization of the gospel that followed in its wake. Aware of my own many faults, the slow pace of my progress as a believer, and of how far short, how far short I fall of the gospel ideal, I'm uncomfortable obsessing about the failures of the church or of other Christians. Instead, I like the dictum that emerged among those early reformed communities. Ecclesia reformata sed semper reformanda, the church reformed, but also needing to be reformed. The Baptist theologian A.J. Conyers called this correcting the correction. In other words, the work of genuine reformation, 
whether of the institutional church or of an individual life, is never finished. The Protestant Reformation spawned a historical way of thinking from which we continue to benefit today. Diarmaid McCullough calls this a remarkable exercise in honest thinking. However violent, shocking, and even incomprehensible we might find the age of the Reformation, McCullough says that we have no right to adopt an attitude of intellectual or emotional superiority, especially in the light of the atrocities of the 20th century Europe produced because of its faith in newer atheistic ideologies. Besides, the reformers in their time were as capable of ruefulness and humility as, at our own best, we too can be. For further reading, I recommend Charles Colson and Richard John Newhouse, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, 1995, and then a second book they publish, Your Word is Truth, a Project of Evangelicals and Catholics Together, 2002. Next, Diarmaid McCullough, The Reformation, from the year 2004. And then Alistair McGrath, Christianity's Dangerous Idea. For books this week, I reviewed Deborah Ellis, Children of War, Voices of Iraqi Refugees, Berkeley, Groundwood Books, 2009, 128 pages. Only after finishing this book did I notice on the book's spine that it's intended for teenagers. <clears throat> Don't let that stop you from reading it, however. Of all the reading I've done on Iraq, I would count this book as one of the most disturbing witnesses to the human costs and consequences of war. Deborah Ellis has collected 23 first-person narratives of Iraqi children, ages 8 to 19, who tell what it's like to experience war. She introduces each story with a photo of the child author and some basic facts about the war like the differences among Sunnis and Shias, the consequences of depleted uranium or a phosphorus bomb, or the unique status of the Kurds. Most of these children live as illegal refugees in Jordan. Hiba, age 16, for example, writes, People watch war in the movies, and they think they know what it's like. They don't know. If they knew, they would, they would not allow it to happen. Only very sick, bad people would want to make war. Or Masim, age 15. I will never forget it, the bombing time when the Americans came. Some of the explosions were cars and buildings actually blowing up. Other explosions were just a lot of noise, sound bombs to scare us. The people who think up these things are terrible, terrible people. Or for a final sample, Hanin, age 10, 
who finally, finally found asylum in Canada. One of the good things about Canada is that there aren't helicopters flying around all the time. I hate that sound. Iraq body count has documented 100,000 civilian deaths in Iraq due to war, war violence since the 2003 invasion. Other analyses place the figure as high as 1 million. The UNHCR estimates that almost 5 million Iraqis have been displaced because of, because of the war. About half of them have fled to Syria and Jordan and the other half are internally displaced from their homes within the country. These children authors witness to the severe traumas that these refugees face. After I finished this book, my mind went to Proverbs 31, 8, and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. In letting these children tell their own stories in their own way, Deborah Ellis has done just that. The title of the book, Children of War, Voices of Iraqi Refugees. For film this week, I review a comedy called O. Horton. The film is from Norway, the year 2008. Ot, o. Ot Horton has just retired from 40 years of service as a train engineer, and he's received the obligatory silver locomotive from his comrades. His staid life has been marked by simplicity and predictability. He smokes his pipe, frequents the same restaurant, takes tulips to his mother in the rest home, and decides to sell his boat. He's never flown on a plane. Ott has driven his last train, and his friend who owned his favorite pipe shop has died. So what now after a lifetime of efficient train schedules? We get a clue to his absurdist future when Aunt dons a pair of bright red high heels and then rescues a drunk diplomat who insists that he can quote-unquote drive blind in this world. Even the 4.7 billion-year-old rock that the diplomat shows him is by no means finished with its journey. And so neither is Ott. The entire film takes place in the dead and dark Norwegian winter, befitting a man in the twilight of life. The final scene suggests that Ott has learned some important life lessons. O. Horton is in Norwegian with English subtitles. And finally, for Reformation Sunday, which coincides with All Saints Day, we've posted the favorite hymn, For All the Saints, written by William Howe. For all the saints who from their labor rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed,
Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia, Alleluia. O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine. Yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia, Alleluia. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song. In hearts are brave, in arms are strong. Alleluia, Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Alleluia, Alleluia. The favorite hymn for all the saints from the year 1864 by William Howe. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Reformation Sunday, November 1st, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.